0: do you like living in portland
1: i like well i don't live in portland directly but yeah i like oregon a lot it's okay a for for an american pl- uh, place. place to live it's <laughs> pretty good so it's i know
0: I, I read one of your tweets where you said you were going to go back to canada or something is that true
1: uh yeah yeah i'm wow. planning to plan to head to head to canada at, uh, yeah and um united states has just gotten a little crazy well i've been here for a long time right and it's it's a it's a there are lots of reasons but um it's just i like change i move every 10 years as well oh, every 10 years yeah really.
0: about about that yeah. what other places have you lived at
1: well i've lived in arizona and and ohio but well in uh, australia arizona ohio connecticut massachusetts okay. I, was, I was sort of eight eight or nine years in boston when i was a graduate school and then at harvard after that oh, and nice. i uh-huh. taught at yale for Uh, a little over eight years and then Ohio then I was chair of physics department in Ohio. I just find the change is invigorating it. It it, It is.
0: All right so what inspired you to write the physics of climate change?
1: Well first of all I I have to say part of it was the pandemic. I was I was uh uh, I normally travel and lecture and I go back and forth places and here I was not you know at home not doing anything and I thought uh, what can I do and I started and and really what had motivated me is I'd taken a group um, earlier in January uh, um, to uh, to the Mekong Delta yeah. for many reasons and I, and I began to research climate change in the context of that and that right. really grew on me and speaking to that group uh, their reactions really indicated to me that people really wanted to understand what it was about or some people did right. but the importance of understanding and how could one Frame it in a way that was accessible, because it seemed to me it's become such a political issue. But basically, if you can't discuss the science in some some easy and accessible way, right. then how can you expect to have any rational public debate? Exactly. And the idea really grew on me, and uh, and uh, uh, I wrote with a frenzy. And it was fascinating for me to lo- I like to learn new things in the context. But it was it was trying to understand sort of like I did and the reason the title is The Physics of Climate Change is, in some sense harkens back to my book 25 years ago, The Physics of Star Trek where I tried to take a subject that was you know sort of in some ways really seemed inaccessible and, and make it accessible right. and and latch on to something that was in that case a cultural symbol. In this case climate change is a vital vital question but what I wanted to do was write a book that wasn't about policy. Okay. Uh, I wanted to write a book that hopefully would reach people who were skeptical who who didn't buy were worried about about policies that might infringe on their pocketbooks or something else and and so i didn't want to write a book that advocated policy because that would turn those people off people off exactly. and, and uh i was very very happy after i finished it to uh and i wrote it i have to say in a normal book takes me at least a year to write, and, and and this would have taken me at least 10 months. I wrote it in 10 weeks because oh. I had n- I, basically morning, noon, and night, uh, uh, and it was kind of a new experience for me. I'd never done anything like that. I also wrote it before I'd had any arrangement with a publisher, which is also the first time I'd ever done that with any of my books, but it was a subject that clearly had captured me.
0: Exactly,
1: And I, I was very happy afterwards when I had colleagues who were or friends who were somewhat skeptical, who weren't scientists, who read it and said, this is the book I've been looking for. And on that topic, how would you describe the physics of climate change to a layman? (laughs) Well, that's what the book's about. But uh, I guess the point is that what uh, the key thing I wanted to demonstrate was that you hear all this stuff about complicated computer models, supercomputer calculations right. of climate, right. and that's true. At, you know, to, to to do refined estimates of what's going to uh, what might happen in some location or how precipitation could change in 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 the northern hemisphere versus right. the southern hemisphere and specifics of 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 melting of of, of glaciers, but. The fundamental physics, as I like to say in the book, is it isn't rocket science. Right. <laughs> it's, it's based on re, really basic physics, that is understandable. The, uh, obviously, one hears the, the the term the greenhouse effect, but uh, and uh, and it's cert- that's a key notion, but it's often again misplaced. But uh, so what I wanted to do was describe, uh, uh, and what I can do is describe the fact that it's just it. it Although there are differences, it's like thinking what happens when you sleep under a blanket on, right. on a bed. Okay, right. Your body's radiating heat and, and it would radiate out. Okay, The blanket in some sense uh, stops it from radiating out and that's what people often think of as greenhouse effects. But it's, mo- it's even more subtle than that. The point is that by the blanket basically s- absorbing your heat and radiating it back to you, okay. the surface of the blanket is cooler. Than the surface of your body. Right. So the surface of the blanket is radiating, as all things are, but at a lower temperature, and therefore less radiation is going into the room. That's that's the key of the of the greenhouse effect that I think most people don't realize. Um, it's really not what's happening at the surface of the earth. It's the as as the atmosphere absorbs more infrared radiation from the earth's surface. Right. Let, let me step back. Okay. The sun heats the earth okay, okay? it, 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 it provi- provides energy that it pinches on the earth each day and the earth reflects some of it okay and it absorbs some of it and it re-radiates some of it okay now if it didn't radiate into space the same amount of radiation that came in from the sun then the earth would continually heat up right so in equilibrium it's got to radiate into space the same amount Of energy that that, that That comes in from the sun and where does it radiate it radiates from the well some of it you know gets reflected from the surface of the earth and goes through the atmosphere but the but the the radiation coming from the earth is radiated from the surface of the atmosphere the edge of space because that's where the radiation can escape into space okay and if we absorb more radiation in the atmosphere then the point where the Earth radiates into space is at a higher elevation, because because the atmosphere isn't transparent until you're higher up, because radiation is being absorbed. And higher up, the atmosphere is cooler. So effectively, the Earth is radiating into space from a cooler place, which means it's radiating less energy, which means it's heating up, because it's getting in. And, And what happens is it heats up enough until eventually you get an equilibrium again. That's something called radiative forcing, and that's the sort of, what I've given here is a basic explanation of that. But that's the heart of what's happening, of the heart of the reason that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are, are, are important, even for, with very small percentage in the atmosphere, is they change the point in the the atmosphere, at the uh, the upper level of the atmosphere where the Earth radiates. That's basically the heart of it. And the interesting thing is that the science of it is quite fascinating, the history of it is quite fascinating, as I discussed there. Mm -hmm. And if we
0: were to take actions to stop climate change, Mm -hmm. do you think it's it's too far gone, or do you think we could
1: still... It's never too far gone to take action. I mean, (laughs) that's the point. Look, there are things that are going to happen, as I discuss in the book. Like it or not, Given the 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 heat energy that's already been absorbed due to the fact that we've Im- increased the carbon dioxide abundance in our atmosphere by 30% since uh, since 1900 more or less. 30%. Um, 30%. Wow. Yeah. Well. Uh, the, 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 yeah. W- and well, actually, it, since um, the measurements first started to be taken about 1960, okay, by Ralph Keeling, uh, when the uh, carbon dioxide abundance at something like 315 parts per million that's in 1960 it's already up to 420 Wow! it's 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 that's changing a on a human yeah. sc- on a short time scale in 60 years by that by that incredible amount that's a lot. and and that's a lot and the question is well when you say it's a lot and one of the things I try and do in the book is what is it is it a lot what is what does what it mean to know you example. know it's still it's still less than one part in ten thousand of the atmosphere right <laughs> um, uh, and and so uh, uh, or four parts in 10,000, I should say, in the atmosphere. But um, uh, uh, So so the point is that there are things we've already done and and that they're not model dependent. And that's the other thing that's important. Really what I want to show is, yeah, the fine details are model dependent. It's like the fine details of, of designing a car, right, a, right. A, a fancy sports car. You have to really work and do literally... F- fancy computer models, That's but exactly. how an internal combustion engine works, you don't need fancy computer models exactly. to understand. Exactly. And so, anyway, the, for example, the, the sea levels are rising, and much of the conventional wisdom is that sea levels are rising because somehow glaciers are melting, and wa- but in fact, A fair fraction, at least half of the recent sea levels rising, is a simple fact of physics. When you heat water up, it expands. And the oceans have stored a lot of energy that's being, uh, that's heat energy energy that's being circulated around the oceans. And just from the heat we've already dumped in, even if we stopped using fossil fuels and brought the level down today to where it was in 1960, even if we stopped that, you're talking by the year 2100 and about. A quarter of a meter 25 centimeters of sea level rise that may not seem like a lot that's a lot but it is a lot as I'll talk about as I talk about near the end of the book in places around the world that alone is significant and so that's gonna happen right and so first of all when we think about action the worst thing we can do is put our heads in the sand and say I don't want to think about the problem Mm -hmm, right because we should at least prepare for that Okay, and it's, that's not going to end civilization, but it's going to produce known effects, and we should be prepared for that in the first world countries where we can imagine what's the effect of, a, and, and in fact, if you plug in all the other effects that are likely by, the, by 2100, we're probably going to have one meter sea level rise. Wow. That's more or less a conservative number, and it's more or less n- independent of whatever we do. Okay. So,
0: if you were president of the world, and you would, <laughs> <laughs> and you would have to pass, pass executive orders to stop this,
1: what would be... Well, I, the point is, that w- w- there's a lot we can't stop, but we can try and ameliorate. We can try and look at low-level, low-lying low regions and ask what can we do to protect them. That's not unheard of. Think of Holland. Much of the country is already under sea level, it is, but, yeah. but they managed to build incredible systems that protect that country. There'll be as i discussed in the book mo- where i was most of south vietnam almost all of south vietnam will be below sea level by 2100 in fact by 2050 probably and how all of that, com-
0: that how would you stop that
1: well y- you know th- there you'd have to imagine incredible engineering feats with sluices and and gates and right. um, and and you also have to imagine the things that are exacerbating that as well because that whole region depends on the mekong delta basically flooding the rice fields d- at, at various times of the year. And the Mekong Delta, as I said at the very beginning of the book, what amazed me, if you go down the Mekong River, you see these barges dredging sand everywhere. The, 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 uh, sea le- the river level has, uh, flora, I'm sorry, I should say, has dropped by over a meter due to sea level, due to dredging for sand, for concrete, um. and things like that. So you've got to say, how can we, first of all, stop making the problem worse? And then you'd have to imagine huge, huge construction projects. You also might have to imagine saying, well, maybe we can't do that. How can we adjust our economy? How can we consider relocating people? Because right. there'll be, a- and that's another problem. Unfortunately, if you look at the predictions differentially of what's, uh, what are likely around the globe, you find that the effects are probably exacerbated around the, uh, more or less around the equator, okay, or near the near equator, but near regions which are unfortunately both impoverished many countries are impoverished and largely agricultural and that's going to have a huge impact, impact on their agriculture. And, a, and and so today there's a big issue of imma- immigration in this country and right. other countries right. but we have to prepare for the fact that they're going to be that they're they're already climate migrants but there are likely to be many more climate migrants, people who literally, their livelihood depends on agriculture, but the climate has changed, right. or the conditions have ch- changed the way that they can't function anymore, and they're going to move. Right. And so if we're not prepared for that in advance, we're going to have an influx of uh, uh, not just tens of thousands or right. millions, but right. the, 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 if you look at it, there's something like 120 million people on earth who will be... Who live in l- regions that are low-lying enough to be a- affected by the turn of the century? Right. But the other thing is clearly. But why are people mi- so skeptical? Like that's my that's my yeah that's a good question. I mean, people like everything everything you just said makes complete sense to me. But I think people are skeptical first of all because they don't want to. People are worried about their livelihoods. Okay, right. some people are worried about the lives in the future, but some right. people worry that if we e- enact changes that'll that'll impact on this, that'll affect the standard of living. Right. You know, and, and you know, people say, "Oh, you can't, you know, use fossil fuels. You can't drive your cars," and that's that's right. just not the case. What we need to realize is that, and and I think this is why I try and end the book, in some sense, on, on not necessarily an optimistic note, mm. but it, it's like it's like the Dickens. Story of of uh, of of uh, the Christmas Carol. There's yeah. the future as it might be, right? And if we picture the future as might be, we can change the future now by do by taking action. And there are lots of and technology is a remarkable thing, and and so the the problem really isn't a technological one; it's a political one. W- there are lots of things we can do to try and address uh, address the problem, including investing in technologies that reduce our, our dependence on fossil fuels. In a way that doesn't hurt the the, the standard of living, actually helps, helps. the standard of right. living, and I think that. <laughs> but I think a lot of the skepticism is unfortunately due to short-term um, greed. Greed, r- really. R- basically, yeah. <laughs> that. Um, and and it, you know the funny thing is. Many fossil fuel companies, as the U, uh, just like the U. if you look at the groups that are already looking at the future and seeing what it's going to be, those include fossil fuel companies. They see the writing on the wall, right. as does the US military, by the way. The one they're of the first organizations bit, right. that, ha- that created a study group on climate change was the military. Why? Because it's it, their job not to worry about what the politicians say or what is politically correct, right. but what are the real threats in the 21st century and and in some sense climate change is a national security threat. I think there's been a very effective um, public relations campaign against uh, the notion of, of climate change for two reasons. One well, is one is the, is the the greed aspect, but right. the other is that People don't want to do something now for well, something in the future. Well, that o- yeah. that's always the case. It's <laughs> very hard to imagine something, right. in, you know, th- your grand. Right. Right. In right. fact, by talking right. about grandchildren, maybe one of the few ways we could try and reach people. Right. But but it's not a problem like nuclear weapons where the world will end today. Okay. And, and let me, urgent, let yeah. me state it again. I'm not saying the world's going to end. There's going to be <laughs> dramatic changes that we're going to have to address. Right. I think also the problem is a, a skepticism... There's, there is, unfortunately, a growing skepticism about various kinds of science. You're seeing it in the pandemic. Right. People who say, oh, I don't trust the I'm scientists. Ask, yeah. but, but somehow, what people were able to do is focus on this model aspect. And it is absolutely true that the m- detailed climate models are incredibly complex, and some of the predictions are, have, have large uncertainties. And one of the biggest misunderstandings in the public today is the notion of uncertainty in science, like uncertainty is a bad thing. It's a good in thing. fact, it's a, good it's a good thing. Science is the only area of human intellectual activity where we can quantify our uncertainties. We can say, "Here's our prediction," but there are these error bars, right. a- and and that's incredibly important. It's central it, in all the physics I do, from cosmology to particle physics. It's the it, being able to quantify our uncertainty is incredibly important. But but the fact that models have uncertainties and the fact that they're complicated is something that people can harp on. What you get is people saying I disagree with this model because they haven't put in this factor, you know, it's a complicated... Well,
0: well, even think to recently like with the the models of the coronavirus
1: yeah they said these models
0: said certain things are going to happen at the end they realized they weren't going to happen so that kind of adds to the... Well, it does
1: in a sense but what it does is people sometimes the uh, the scientists are are sometimes to blame for this if you overstate what your predictions are without your uncertainties, then then you're then it comes around and bites you in the butt, right and and one of the biggest things about the pand- pandemic uh, and the coronavirus is that is that people don't realize that epidemiology is an incredibly complex and uncertain field because the statistics are so bad. You can't predict what a virus is going to do. There's no way during a pandemic you can make accurate predictions on what's going to happen when you don't know many features. and so, the scientists do the best they can, right. but to assume, it, it, partly I say, I was just on a program about Star Trek the other day and I was saying one of, the, one of the things that Star Trek did that hurt us is gave the illusion that when there's this technical problem that you know, Geordi or someone else can, or, or Scotty can <laughs> can fix it in an hour, right. you know, that technologically we'll go and do it and the point is that's not the way it works in the real world, it takes a long time and if you, and, and, and garbage in garbage out, if you don't have the data if you don't have the the, the the experiments that give you precise an understanding of many features in the case, of the dynamic like transmission right. and and the the dynamics of how it's of of, of what the virus does, you can't possibly. Um, make really accurate predictions. What you can do is say, if this, then that. And that's what I think the accurate epidemiologists were were trying to do, but people, of course, latched on to either the worst-case predictions or the best-case predictions. um,
0: It it reminds me of kind of like when I work with clients. I'm a software engineer. I work with uh, Google and Cisco (laughs) and the whole deal. And when you're trying to explain to a client or a stakeholder that they can't do something technologically speaking because you need to get other assets. Yeah, yeah. They don't understand that. It's kind of,
1: it's all like a difficult job or to explain co- complexity well, sometimes. People want, I think the hardest thing is when people want a result. It's really hard to understand. Um, you know, some people want, in the pandemic, want a result would be no death. Some right. people want it a lot so that they would hurt politicians <laughs> or, or or so that people would be shocked. And I think it's the same. People obviously look at, the clim- climate change is such a, Slow process. It's kind of like evolution. There, were, there are all these. You know, I, for a long time, I, I spent a lot of my time trying to convince schools not to, you know, not to stop teaching evolution, which is the base of modern biology. But evolution involves change over. I thought,
0: I thought over you were a promoter of uh, creationism.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, but one of the problems with that is that is that though evolutionary processes happen over long time periods that are so long that when people look around then uh, they'd say to me i don't see species changing today and it's a slow process. it's a slow process mm-hmm. and climate change is a, is a slow process uh, it's not that slow i mean th- what amazed me in the writing of the book and and i already knew some of it is how dramatic various changes have happened and that's the other important thing People suggest that the problem with climate change is its predictions of the future. In fact, it's happening now and you can measure it now. It's not some model dependent theoretical prediction of scientists that you may not trust. Right. You can measure things, certain things like the acidification of the ocean, which is a direct consequence of the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, well, so, you know, I there are many, many changes you can. In fact, one of the int- more interesting things that I discuss in the book, which is remarkable, is there's a difference between weather and climate. Okay. Okay. And you know, weather it, weather is what's going to happen at a local location, you know, today or tomorrow. And climate is sort of uh, global conditions that change over time that can be right. measured. And 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 what's really interesting is, for the first time, uh, there a Nature article came out suggesting that in weather measurements, namely in you know on, around the world on a given day, you can actually see the effect of climate change for the first time statistically it's really hard to distinguish weather from climate and I talk about that so in fact in certain cases things are actually measurably changing on a on a time scale that is not th- the scale of our grandchildren children or grandchildren and so why isn't it called weather change instead of climate change well I, no because it isn't weather change okay. weather is you know the weather tomorrow you know it, and this is a real problem when when a senator from Oklahoma brings in a snowball <laughs> from Washington saying today was a really cold day in Washington, therefore the climate isn't changing, right. weather varies by a great amount on any location. Today, you know, we're g- doing this interview in Portland, in Oregon, and I can tell you the weather changes a lot here. It Happily, does. it's, it's a, a, a sunny day, but… but uh, what, do you, what do you say to those who say, everything you say makes complete sense, but now is it humans' fault? That's well, really diverge. well uh, a- again, and, and the whole point is to try and look at that, and that was the question that was asked early on when people were measuring carbon dioxide. And it, there's an old saying, if it walks like a dock, and quacks like a dock. It's right. yeah. And so, th- the point is, we can measure, we can measure how much carbon dioxide humans are putting in the atmosphere by, their, by human industrial activity. You can. Okay. Yeah, we can measure it. Okay? We then determine how much there is, and then we look and we see, oh. Well, the amount by which carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is increasing in a r- in a way that's exactly explicable to, to and uh, is that it's just d- humans or all animal uh, no, life no no human industrial activity ju- oh I see, I see yeah and and we can see that the amount it's changing is completely consistent now you could say maybe there's a vast conspiracy right. and then but you can also say well but is that changing in climate And you can say well let's make some basic simple predictions if you increase carbon dioxide by this amount what it will do for global say uh, temperatures. Well, what do you know? The global temperatures have changed by one degree C, which is more or less exactly what you'd predict for that that, uh, increase in carbon dioxide. So you can say, well, every prediction is bang on with the observations. And the observations are consistent with what we're arguing. And maybe there's some vast conspiracy that... Of effects that somehow everything we predict is wrong but something else is producing exactly what we predict and you could say well you know that's always possible in science maybe gravity maybe gravity doesn't you know go as one over r-squared maybe they're little little pink elephants that are sneaking in when I drop a ball and pushing Uh it down I mean I can make all that but but the the simplest argument is that the simple predictions work and are measured to be consistent with the with the observations and the case of climate change everything is consistent with human human industrial activity and there's no and this is the key point there's no alternative explanation
0: what about the climate on mars why does it change so often especially mars is just coming out of a of an
1: ice age oh how is we we were too okay um but that happens on glacial that happens on geological time frames on the time frame of 30 years nothing can explain the, or let's say sixty years since Ralph Keeling first started to measure the okay. increased climate on that time to time scale, nothing can explain the, the effects that are observed except for the fact that the that that we're dumping carbon dioxide in, and it's producing that effect. You the earth has gone through many climate changes and we can measure them. Exactly. And, and and people say, well, you know, you you the earth <laughs> but but once again in f- in the first case one can one can describe the astrophysical and geological um, ra- reasons or connections, correlations between long-scale, long-term climate change and right. glacial periods, um, uh, ha- and 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 what we see in the Earth, those are generally explicable. But they're not. They they the sun isn't changing in its in its emissivity and its luminosity on a timescale of sixty, sixty years. In right. a way, I mean, right. the, the sun is changing, and the Earth is. The, there's no it's doubt that it's more of a longer, gradual kind oh of. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The sun in in two two billion years, the the sun right. will be 15 percent brighter. And then, by the way, there will be a global. Runaway greenhouse effect, where the surface of the Earth will be like Venus, <laughs> oh. but I don't, unless we do something about it. Unless okay. we go to Mars, or unless we do something. That, you know, we're an intelligent species, but sometimes do you like what? Put like a huge softbox over. There's lots the of things we might imagine. We might move the position of the Earth. Yeah, we're we getting, there's what? lots of possibilities. <laughs> but 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 that I think that two billion year change is not something you know we need to worry about right, right. away. Right. We have two billion years if we're around, and it's and that's not you know. So the point is that. Um, you're well, right the ch- that the cl- weather changes, and that's the key thing to distinguish right. weather and climate. Okay. And, um, and you know, because that's another thing I think that's really important to understand that when it comes to people's skepticism. People say, well, look, I can predict the weather here in Portland tomorrow, and I can make a prediction a week from now, but my prediction is not likely to be right. Well, right. if I can't predict the weather in Portland a week from now, how can, how can you, I uh, predict climate? That's a good and point. And it's a very different... Thing you're not talking about local variability. In uh, this week, you're talking about a a global effect, but also you're talking about averaged over over many many individual variations, which are the you're averaging over many individual variations. That's why, for example. I might not be able to predict what you can do, but if I take all of humanity, I can make certain predictions because of what the law of large numbers, where the, the average of humanity will do something, okay? Right. The average height of humans will change, the average population will grow. Gen- so g- generally speaking, exceptions excluded, essentially. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But yep. you know, it's one of the reasons I do cosmology, I often say, is that the universe is far simpler to understand because right. there's lots of complexity here on Earth. Right. And one of the reasons I don't do climate change as a, as a scientist is so complicated compared to right. cosmology. Right. In, in that sense, well, it's not the reason, the only reason. I'm, I'm interested in sort of fundamental questions of right. how the universe works, but um, uh, but the universe is relatively easy to understand in it because it's so simple on large scales, in spite of the in spite of the uh, all the local variability. Right. And and climate, uh, because we're 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 averaging over local variations and we're 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 looking at lo- longer time scales, um, is in some sense easier to understand. Um, because you're looking at global quantities like the emissive, emissivity of the earth, the absorption of radiation, global effects. There, I mean, as I say, there's no, it's not rocket science to say the earth has to radiate into space the same amount of radiation that comes in for the sun right. or it'll heat up. I don't think anyone can deny that fact okay and if they do then they're denying basic physics (laughs) okay you know if the out what goes out is the same as what comes in everything is going to remain the same right and if it changes things will change and so you if you look at global questions such as as radiation by the earth and we can measure by the way again these aren't model dependent things in my book i have graphs showing satellites measuring the emissivity of the Earth in different bands, and right. you know, you can see. So we can look at the radiation emitted by the Earth, and we can look at the radiation coming down in the Earth. And so these aren't. This isn't. Do you, do you think
0: people should be educated on this uh, from from elementary school? To well,
1: basically, like I think the required curriculum. Well, look, I think the required curriculum should be to understand how we get. How we understand things and how we and what how to separate sense from nonsense. It used to be the school taught kids facts, okay. Right. But now, as I often say, there's more facts in my iPhone uh, than. <laughs> but there's more misfacts. What we have to teach people is how to question. Is the scientific method. Right. That's what we need to teach people to rely on empirical evidence, many different sources to question yourself, right. question others, test your hypotheses, and that sort of thing. Now, but but, but, but when I it comes like to s- basic things mm-hmm. about climate mm-hmm. change. Absolutely. I mean, it's a great example of how to to ask questions about the world and how exactly. to look at things, which is why I wrote this mm-hmm. book. It's the kind of thing that anyone should at some, you know, I'm not asking everyone to be a climatologist and people say that, you know, well, I, I, well, I just recently wrote that I was very upset at the Supreme Court candidate who, happened while we're talking, is maybe be confirmed. Give it little, it'll date when we're talking about this. <laughs> but but and when she was asked about, about climate change, she read, she read about it, but she didn't have any strong views. And then when she was asked about, in, in the context of you know whether she believes smoking cause, causes cancer, she said she didn't want to discuss the issue because it was politically controversial. Well, science isn't politically. Uh, science is science. Right. Uh, and, and and so. So arguing that I refuse to discuss reality because it might impact on politics right. is a problem. But, but anyone who considers themselves literate should at least have a basic understanding of the very issue that I just said. Energy in equals energy out. Certain basic concepts of science that are essential for, for everyday life. I think every, what I think is we need scientific literacy at the same way. We we need literacy. Nothing's history. You know, we expect people to know the Holocaust happened. Okay, I mean basic aspects of history, or how to determine what happened in the Second World War. We we need we expect people to know maybe who William Shakespeare was if they're <laughs> if they have some literacy. Right. And so having some basic understanding of energetics and science is important. But we've 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 removed ourselves from that responsibility. We've We've uh, hidden from that responsibility, where so we can, we people can proudly claim their scientific illiteracy, and it's it's a badge of honor. Whereas right. we'd disqualify them if they said, "Well, you know, I I think I've heard who Shakespeare was, but I have no strong views on." You know, <laughs> I mean, it, people would laugh at them. Right. But w- but we somehow decide that that to be to, that. To understand any spa- aspects of science, you have to be a scientist. Right. But we don't say that about anything else. To understand any basic aspects why of you economics, you have to be an economist. What? Why do you think that is? Why? Why do you think people put such a high kind of bar? I I think part understand. of it is the scientific community themselves, right? It's very if you pr- if you claim to have a secret secret knowledge, right, it gives you power, right. Right. And I think the, that kind of elitism, I think, is a good part of it. But a part of it also, I think, is that just we've we, well, partly science relates to math, okay. and people are afraid of mathematics. And we, again, don't convince people that most people can do basic mathematics. They're, they people are, if, if people say, gee whiz, I just don't, uh, numbers don't do anything for me, we right. say, okay, fine. But again, once again, if, if people said, you know, English, writing doesn't do anything for it's me, like, it, hey. we, they wouldn't <laughs> get a job, exactly. okay? And, and so... I I I think it's just that it seemed cool for too long. I mean, we talk about the poor poor science education in schools, and there has been okay. But what worries me almost as much, having taught at Yale for many years, was seeing kids who who were clearly intelligent, but we gave them a free pass. They could proudly proclaim their scientific literacy and call that culture somehow. Saying I was going to make that point
0: actually. What do you think
1: about universities now not being so
0: picky about the people that go into school? Well, uh, I mean, that's the, cause the thing is, that when you when you're not as picky with people, then you have to kind of dumb down the curriculum, so so it could be learned by
1: someone who might not be otherwise be able to learn something. like well, that. Well, I think, look, I think I think that I'm more optimistic. I think most people. That's why I write popular books, among yeah. kind of other things. I think basic ideas anyone can access. So I'm not, I I am concerned that that universities, first of all, and and when I one of the reasons I, I was frustrated at Yale is they give the impression that students don't have to understand any science to be cultured. And moreover, in some sense, the less they understand or the less capable they are dealing with it, the more cultured they are. That right. somehow saying you're oh, math doesn't work for me, is is, is akin to saying, yes, I'm an artistic a person. I'm a more creative person, right? Yeah, exactly, and that's just I've not I've never true. understood that, yeah. Yeah, no, no, huh. well, but it but it's a, it's a myth. Right. My, a friend of mine, Alan Alda, who's a, an actor, once said, yeah. you know, he's done a lot to promote science, and we've done a bunch of events together. But I love what he once said, he said, he talked about science versus the arts, and he said, um, "Science requires creativity, and the arts require hard work, or something <laughs> like that." Just, <laughs> yeah, to yeah. just to, you know, and and it's true. It's about, you know, but they're both very similar in in requiring what? creativity and hard work. But you know, when it comes to universities again, I think that um, I what is a right problem more for me uh, of a problem with universities is. I think for many people... And people don't want to talk about that usually. Yeah, well... Because the, they, they want
0: to make education accessible to everyone.
1: Well, every education <coughs> education should be accessible to everyone, but that doesn't mean everyone should go to university. Exactly. And, and having taught at universities for many years and had a daughter who, who went to college and a stepdaughter who is now in college, uh, it's clear to me that a lot of kids go to university without, without knowing why they're there. That's there are point. a lot of countries, you know, I guess when, when I, I lived in Switzerland for a little while when I was uh, working at CERN and, and, um, uh, which is a scientific establishment in Geneva and um, what surprised me and I've spent a lot of time in Zurich is to learn that in Switzerland they generally tend to steer kids to only 15% go to universities they don't, they, it's not as if only 15% are allowed to, right. but fi- and the rest go to good vocational schools or good schools and, and there's train nothing them wrong there. with that. There's and there's absolutely, absolutely nothing <coughs> wrong with it and I would, look if people know why they want to go to university, then I'm I'm in favor of it being open to everyone. Right. But universities are probably not the right place for a lot of kids. Right. A lot of kids, I think, and a lot of parents send their kids there just as sort of a rite of passage. Exactly. And I, I feel badly that kids go come out after four years knowing not knowing why they went in because they don't they don't get out of university what they should loan, get
0: with a huge loan too.
1: We yeah, with a huge loan, but if you if if. If you do that, it's a waste of your parents' money and 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 a waste of your time. Exactly. Because university is a great place to go and expose yourself to knowledge, independent of its practicality, and question your basic assumptions and learn about the the wonderful, uh, 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 incredible legacy of intellectual gifts that have been given to us as human species. It's a wonderful place, and obviously I've, I've obviously I spent most of my life at universities, but. But you have to be ready to take that in, and you have to be willing to, to to work hard to take it in. Right. And and you can and I still think everyone should have a basic level of literacy, and that's what we should be teaching in our schools. But but a lot of people can have careers and and successful careers without without that. And and what you really want to teach people, and this is true, university or high school. What we really should be teaching is how to be a lifelong learner. Exactly. I I know people who have who haven't gone to university. Who are more well-read, more scholarly, a- a- and more intelligent than people that I know that have gone to university? It took me a while to realize that, because I, I was kind of a, you know, I'm, you, academics have been my whole mm-hmm. life, and it was only because, partly because of my public persona that I began to meet people outside of the university and right. realize and that you're like, wow, th- this
0: guy, this guy knows more than well, some of the yeah, other people.
1: this <laughs> this effete kind of uh, 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 pompous view I'd had that sort of right. you know the most intelligent people at universities was right. was wrong, and so what we we need and, and and it's also been clear to me in my own experience, I learned more physics, I certainly learned more about the kind of physics I do now, after getting my PhD than before my PhD. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I think that's, for any good scientist that's true, we, I mean for any good scholar it's true, we got to keep learning, but for humans we got to keep learning, right. and what we, so our learning shouldn't stop in high school okay, our ability, what we need to teach people is how to teach themselves right. and that's what I'm talking about, especially in this world of fake news and social networking and, 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 and access to information and misinformation if we don't teach kids how to continue to access information appropriately and digest it and question it, then we're lost. What do
0: you say about people who think educating people about global warming or climate change is political in a way, because when they grow up they get to vote on policies that are against...
1: Well, you know, look, they may or may not. Uh, The point is, arguing that we shouldn't educate people because they may come to conclusions upon being educated that disagree with our preconceived notions is the worst is child abuse. It's one of the things I argue... Some people argue we shouldn't teach kids evolution or science because it stops them believing in God. Well, it doesn't always, but if it does, okay, you'd rather your kids not be prepared to, to, to be part of an economy in the 21st century. You'd rather not learn the basics of modern biology in a world where biotechnology may be a great part of what make, keeps our economy going. You'd rather than be ignorant and believe something then learn something and perhaps change their mind. Do you
0: think Sci- that's child abuse? Do you think science and religion are compatible? Can two, can a person be religious?
1: Well, and, di- and uh, you know, well, it's it, 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 the answer is yes in the sense that uh, you know I'm an empiricist, so I know scientists are religious, so obviously right. that's possible. But in my opinion. The reason they are that way is that people are... And, and by the way, this is a secret, scientists are people. Really? Uh, yeah. Let me write a- that down. Yeah, 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 write it down. <laughs> news flash <laughs> here, breaking news. Yeah. Uh, people are very good at, at believing two mutually contradictory ideas at the same time, because we're not purely rational human beings. Right. As, as was once said, reason is a slave of passion. And so, uh, what is clear to, to me and most of my colleagues is that the, the the tenets of the world's major religions are certainly incompatible the with with what we know about the empirical world, um, but people, but people can can if as lo- as long as they don't let their religion influence their religious beliefs have an impact on on what they're doing in the laboratory, then it's perfectly fine. But but I mean, wh- but I mean, look, look, there, we don't there are no miracles in the real in the in the scientific world. There's nothing. There's no evidence of anything that, that, that uh, violates known laws of science. If there are, then we're excited about it and we try and learn about it. Right. And so, most of the world's religions are based on miracles. That's just one example. And it's certainly, science is completely inconsistent with a fundamentalist view, which namely means taking those scriptures, what, whatever religion, yep. the Koran, the Bible, whatever, the New Testament, the Old Testament, taking them literally is clearly inconsistent with science. You know, the Earth isn't 6,000 years old, and there are people who say, uh, you know, I read the Bible, and the Bible says the Earth is 6,000 years old, and the Bible can't be wrong. Therefore, everything we know in science must be wrong, and that's the wrong attitude, because science is, you can either... Well, some people question carbon dating and how that's done. Well, because they're looking for reasons to... If you have the answer before you ask the questions, that's the wrong way of going about What you have to do is ask the questions and accept whatever the answer is based on your investigation. So religious fundamentalism is saying, I know what's right before I know anything. I know that this this book must be right, and therefore everything else um, has has to be consistent. Instead of asking yourself the question, let me look at nature and is it consistent? And if it isn't... Then maybe that, I got to rein. Re- re- in, in fact, even. That's a good uh, point. You said, let, let's look at nature and see if it, the scientific method
0: is using our, our senses, right? Yeah. Or do you think there's phenomenon out there that it exists
1: outside of our, our, our senses? Well, that is immeasurable through science, but still could be real or true. Uh, well, the whole, that's the whole point of science. We've created instruments that allow us to see things that are beyond our senses. We have infrared detectors, microwave detectors, right. neutrino detectors, gravitational wave detectors. Right. We've expanded what we can, what we can detect. And and that's revealed in an invisible universe, and that's part of what I try and say. Right. The real universe is so amazing; you don't need the nonsense. Right. The climate change is amazing. Some of the aspects of it are fascinating. I mean, the way the w- Earth works and the right. way it, the way it responds to things, the way the oceans work, it was fascinating for me to learn about. Okay, and, well, wh- and why is it the Catholic Church spent so much money on investing in
0: astronomy? And one of the, b- the most important astronomers actually came from the uh, Catholic Church. Well, uh, If religion was, was opposed uh, well, uh, to... He
1: it was excommunicated, though. Yeah. I mean, the guy, they learned their lesson with Galileo. Right. I think there are a lot of reasons and, I'm not, and, and that I've read, and I'm not a historian of religion, that they was, it's, sometime, it's important. Some people would argue it was important for the Catholic Church to know what the real world worked like. Work right, r- how right. it worked so that they'd so be prepared did, to, to deal with those people who would somehow argue that that uh, right. disproved the existence of God right. but let me but you know when it comes to this religion and science thing l- go back to Saint Augustine who's no scientist right. but what he once said was if I mean and I'll paraphrase it okay and actually Mo- Moses Maimonides let me pick another Maimonides, person the yeah, Rambam. Yeah, yeah yeah and <laughs> said once said look the scriptures are absolutely true he said But if your interpretation of the Scriptures disagrees with the evidence of science, you better re-examine your interpretation of the Scriptures. And St. Augustine said, that more or less, the Bible isn't a scientific document. So, bottom line is, if you think there's something profound in the Bible, that's okay. I don't. Let me make that clear. You don't but think it's poetic, at least? Oh, it, uh, certain parts of it are poetic. Okay. Certain parts, are, and okay. certain parts that are boring. Right. You know, okay. I mean, there's wonderful poetry in the Bible. It's it's as a piece of literature, it's fascinating. Just like the Odyssey is a, is a fa- and, and, and and the Aeneid are a fascinating piece of literature. But I don't believe in multi-headed beasts. Right. And from the you know, uh, but I loved reading the Greek the Greek myths. Okay. So, but what, it, what it, if you think it's profound in some way? That's fine. But you can't require. The w- the world the universe isn't the way it I- isn't the way it is because you want it to be that way. The universe is the way it is whether you like it or not. Right. And whether or not you'd like there to be climate change, that doesn't matter. Whether or not you'd like humans to have an impact on the planet, that doesn't matter. And whether or not you think humans can ameliorate the problem doesn't matter. The question is, can we? Can can we address this problem in a way that that at least makes us better prepared as, as in fact as I end the book I, 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 with a with a yeah. quote from Louis Pasteur yeah which is fortune favors the prepared mind and that's the important thing we have to be at least know what reality is if we want to respond as human beings and and my book is to say here's the reality now let's have a discussion of policy right. based on the reality you can decide you want to do X, Y, or Z and you can have rational debates about whether we need to you y- 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 immediately get rid of uh, gas burning cars or whether we need to you know institute a, a policy about electric electrical engineer, uh, generation electricity generation or how to use nuclear power versus wind power versus uh, you know right. solar all those things are important policy questions but if we don't know the reality we're just we're just you know do you think
0: there should be a fundamental change in how society operates in terms of the people that
1: lead us should they be scientists well no, I don't think science should, should lead us. I really no? don't. I believe in a democracy, at least I have. <laughs> we'll see. But but the point is, in a democracy what we need are informed politicians and informed public. Otherwise a democracy doesn't work. So the but purpose the way, of the science is to is to is to advise, is to provide the data right. that people who are rational and intelligent but may not be scientists. Can then assess that. Should there be a
0: litmus te- litmus test to see if someone's rational.
1: Well, that would be nice. Uh, that would m- remove most politicians. Well, that, no, but, but <coughs> I'll tell you my experience. I was an advisor on uh, to Obama during the campaign in 2008. I was one of he chose. A, he, he made a group of, of thirty scientific people are a member of a community who are scientific advisors, right. but he had 30 committees of the best people that I, it, you know, when I looked around at, in, in the, in at least in the United States advising him on economic policy and science policy, and so to me what you want in a good leader is not someone who knows everything, and there are some, maybe Thomas Jefferson and you know right. Bill Clinton right. used to read voraciously too, but, right. but, but you want someone who recognizes first of all what they don't know, and secondly how to choose really good people for advice, that, and then listen to good advice. Okay, and assess, you know, within the context of reality. Politicians have to realize that the questions of interest, and scientists have to realize, the questions of interest to politicians are not the same as the questions of interest to scientists. Scientists may say, as a scientist it's obvious we do X, but politicians have to weigh different constituencies and may exactly. say yes the scientific guidance is this but based on the readiness of the public to do this or or the economic priorities have here i have to make that decision so that's perfectly understandable that politicians the 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 priorities of politicians are different than the priorities of scientists that's not a bad thing that's a that's just reality right. scientists have to recognize it and politicians have to recognize it they shouldn't discount what scientists say because they the, their, their advice may differ from what you want to do they should realize that the scientists are telling you what's likely to happen and if you want to do this you have to decide what the consequences are and so uh, I, you know I'm happy if more scientists go into politics um, you know it's a shame that lots of lawyers or whatever but <laughs> but 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 I don't care I I don't care where people come from you know I used to hire people uh, at universities, there was a while when I was considering being a, a higher-level administrative official at universities, and was invited right. to consider being a president and other things. But 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 I've been on hiring committees for for and and I'm often less interested in what the person's background is than what their capabilities are to adapt to 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 new challenges. And that's really what's important for for politicians and for society. So without an informed electorate and without informed legislators, then democracy fails. That's just it. And and we're unfortunately in a situation where we're seeing the challenges to democracy, where information is not getting out. You have politicians who overtly, and this has always been the case at one level or another, overtly trying to distort reality for whatever their the personal reasons are. And, what, and that, that is possible in a democracy if you have a public who can see through that, ultimately. And uh, the public won't be able to see through that if they're not educated, though. It, well, what do you mean by educated? If, they're not, if they haven't learned how to tell the difference between sense exactly. and nonsense. Yep. And that, I would say, is a scientific method. That's why science is important. Science isn't important because it's you know, intrinsically more valuable than literature. It's important because it gives us the tools to make predictions about the world that work and to find out, and, and, and find out which predictions don't work. It gives us a tool to assess the difference between sense and nonsense. And that's my mission in some sense. But it's not just pejorative. It also is wonderful. The reason I, I, I write books about climate change or Star Trek or whatever is because science should be a bigger part of our culture. Science has produced you some you of the most amazing.
0: Not. Why do you think it's not a bigger part of our culture?
1: I think we've let this the, we, we've let this two cultures myth of the go on. We've let the we've let the the, the myth that somehow They're you separate. can be yeah. a cultured, intelligent person and not know anything about science. And that's why I love to have events and do things with people who are who are not traditional scientists. I loved, but you know, I like
0: a Christopher Hitchens, very yeah, smart. Christopher Hitchens. I love doing. Yeah.
1: I did a podcast with my, my friend Ricky Gervais, who's, yeah. who's not. Traditionally known as a scientist, but we we talked about podcast, science, yeah. but or or bring people like like Brian May, who I did an event with, who's a guitarist for Queen, but also mm-hmm. by the way happens to have a PhD in astrophysics. Does he really? He yeah, 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 he was, and and so we could talk about that. Or I love, or or Alan Alda and I could talk about science, or Werner Herzog and I, right. and so. So you want to uh, make it more science to be more accessible? Well, more accessible and interest. I want to interest people. Be, if people see that the people they're interested in. Are interested in science maybe it'll be cooler right and if the scientist is interested in science it's not too su- surprising but if a cultural icon is interested in science and you and, and, and then 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 maybe it is. So that's why i love to interact and i love to bring together science and culture and i think in some sense, climate change is a cultural issue. It is, and but but I want to bring to uh, and so the book isn't all it, it, just like it's the physics. Star Trek wasn't this won't work, this won't work, this won't work. That wouldn't end any fun. This isn't all doom and gloom. This is a fascinating way of understanding how the world works, and it doesn't have to all be all bad. It's fascinating to learn how the Earth works and how it responds.
0: I and think how the people uh, people's mm-hmm. impression are when they talk about climate change or global warming. They have like a negative, kind of connotation to it. They're well, kind well, of like, well, I mean, because it's does scary. That, does and that mean I have to pay someone uh, for my carbon offset? And that's where they start to
1: contemplate. Well, it's all been expressed in terms of doom and gloom, and, and and things you can't do, and that people don't want to hear about that. Okay, and and I think, and I've seen it to some extent in this political campaign. What we what we need to do is point out, hey, there are opportunities and challenges uh, that we can we can. For example, the United States has a has had a It's an awful power distribution system in our country. We really need to fix it, independent of anything else, Um, to be able to get electricity from one part from where it's produced to where it's being used, and to use it rationally. Well, addressing climate change can allow us to develop an infrastructure that does that. In the end, we become better off, independent of that. uh, We are uh, we have more reliable sources of energy. 24 hours a day. So in the hot days of summer, in one place, we don't run out of, we don't run out of power and have to turn... Kind of like load balancing. Yeah, and, and mm-hmm. so uh, I think you're right. Climate change, like, it's like nuclear weapons, which is another area I've spent a lot of time on. Um, and I was chairman of the board of the Bolton Atomic Scientists for years and helped set the doomsday clock. Oh, when People I, when, don't I, when,
0: I, when I was in elementary school, uh, they told me that in 10 years, there's going to be a nuclear site, like in every neighborhood. That's what I was told when I was a kid, uh-huh. and now
1: there isn't anything like that. But th- it's this doom and gloom thing. Oh, oh yeah, well that's exactly. It's perva- pervasive in all these, different and people don't want to hear it. Right. So whenever I've written about nuclear weapons, which we need to deal with and their reality, whether we are like or not, falls like a you know flat. <laughs> I, the least response when I've written in the New York Times, as I used to, or or any other place, those op-ed pieces would would have the least response because people don't want to think about the fact that nuclear weapons can can destroy our civilization like that. Right. It doesn't mean they have to, but it, but it, but if we don't think about it, uh, then 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 we're really in peril. Right. And but climate change isn't like uh, isn't like nuclear weapons. It's a it's an existential threat at the same level. But but happily, it's something nuclear weapons in order to deal with we need sane politicians who are willing to act. That's Comes a really back to the same that's thing. Yeah. that's that's a very yeah, but that's a lot a lot harder. Climate change is an area where the public can actually have an impact. The public can only have an impact on nuclear weapons if we, if they protest on mass and say right. we want to. treat But, the, but by our actions, what can we by do as individuals to to stop or slow it? Well, down? and that's a, that's part of the problem. Everyone looks around and says, "How can I do anything? What can I do? Why 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 should I do anything? What I do isn't going to be important." It's right. like, uh, you know, why people have large families; they don't right. realize that. Po- you know, the the population of the earth is a big part of the problem. In fact, sure it's a big part of the problem. If we didn't have 7 billion people, if we didn't have 10 billion people in 2050, that, you know, the 10 billion people is a lot bigger strain on the resource of the Earth than 7 billion or 3 billion, as they were when I was younger. Absolutely, po- population is part yeah, of Well Then the and that
0: brings up all these ideas about population control and this whole thing, and then it goes back to another negative kind
1: of. Well, thing. I know, but I, uh, you know, on the other hand, you don't have to do that because I think generally, and this is one of the reasons I've re- I wrote many years ago yeah. an article for Scientific American saying educate women save the world, because when uh, women are more educated, they have fewer children. Do they really? I'm, not, I, I'm talking about in third world countries, absolutely, because they realize what the, you know, the, the, the how their the, the the well-being of their family partly depends upon that, and they're also more capable and uh, and empowered to control their own reproductive cycles, and so. Uh, but but I think that you know how people individually can affect things is first of all, the first thing you do is learn enough to be responsible and and vote the right way. That's a really, that's not a non-trivial thing. Becoming, re- learning enough to be able to vote for politicians who produce policies that might produce rational so actions. climate change
0: is political at the end, right? Well, in I- a way. It,
1: everything we do is political. Right. But that doesn't mean science is political. Right. But science affects our political si- uh, uh, decisions. Right. And that's okay. That's a good thing. Just like economics should affect in some level our political decisions. and. Art should affect our political decisions, at least decisions on, on what we make about how to how to support the arts and music in the schools. Right. But there's lots of little things you can do. One thing I would say, and this wasn't easy for me, um, but I've, I, I don't eat meat anymore. Really? Okay. Yeah, because meat is a huge, you know, because the amount of, uh, of, of resources we, we take to, pr- not just from the point of view of how much wheat and corn could be used to feed people around the world that's used to feed cattle, but the actual carbon footprint is huge. And, and so it's a simple thing to do. Uh, well, it's, it's not that simple, but <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> how and, long, how and long you know, have you not eaten meat for? Just actually, by the way, just, w- just this year, since I, in, J- in January, wow. when I get to seriously think about this issue. I've been thinking about it for on and off. I, I, I've done events with my friend Peter Singer, who's, who's famous for writing about animal, animal rights. And I, I've sort of eaten meat guiltily for years. My daughter's a vegetarian. Really. Um, uh, but I finally decided. Let's just see if I can so do. So a it. hamburger is really not. Part no, of no, your no, no, and it's not as if I hate it. But I can do fine without it. Right. And um, and so that's one kind of thing you can do. But the other thing I think that we we can do, each of us can do, and it may seem. Look, what I just voted here because happily in Oregon we have voting by mail. We've had it that way ever since I've been here. It's no big deal. Often when I vote, I kind of feel helpless because I think, well, my vote means you know it's so little, right? But it has, but those votes add up and have an impact. So even though my vote for president feels you know ineffectual because that doesn't see it, eventually it these things have an impact. It adds up. And like I think mm-hmm. that the I really do think that that if people are asking what can they do, is they can inform themselves, and so that helps make the affect their own decisions and the decisions politically that they just, that they, they they act on. So, don't eat meat. Well that's one thing. I, I don't mean have you have kids. Uh, so, uh, so I mean so you know uh, not don't have kids you to decide you d- you have to you look uh, these I'm not proscribing things right. or prescribing suggestions it. I'm saying you have to decide which where your priorities are right. okay if you do one thing maybe you don't, maybe you give up on another you have to decide, you have to know what the consequences of your actions are going to be you want to you think having a big family is is important to you and and find, realize the consequences of that and maybe you take other actions to I- I- I to make up for it if 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 right. you want to if you feel Responsible to balance those issues, but so you don't have to give up what you want to do. So I've you just have to realize that, y- that you have to take responsibility for actions. So basically. I've always thought when when smart people
0: or educated people don't have kids, how are we going to replace the Earth with
1: smarter? Well, kids? that's what the y- y- you have. That's that conundrum. Like yeah. Well, look, that's you know that's kind of a, 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 a but that's a, a, a misunderstanding in some sense. I think happily of how uh, genetics really works that somehow only the children of educated people are intelligent. Not always, I mean, but... No, no. There's a lot of example. I mean, not that it matters, but mm-hmm. neither of my parents finished high school, okay? Mm-hmm. And so I think the but wonderful doesn't thing... doesn't mean they weren't smart, though. Yeah, but who, but who am I to decide who's intrinsically smart? Once again, I told you that you can't always look to, to, to people in universities to find the most creative, most intelligent people right. around. Right. And so the mixing of... the great thing about the mix, mixing of genes that comes from sexual reproduction is that is that um is that you get you know uh, uh 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 diamonds in the rough and i think i think that oh no the people who are more educated aren't having enough kids they've got to have more kids because the people who are less educated are having a lot of kids but i do think what we really want to do if we're more i'm more concerned that people who may not be as educated are having more children because it it, it keeps them in poverty that's that Concerns me more than anything. Is it that not not point. being realizing that in some sense, they're dooming themselves and to some extent their childrens to a future that may not be as good. That concerns me much more, especially in the third world.